Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke. We're in chapter 19 today, beginning in verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy St. Patrick's Day. I did not know that until my wife put green on my child and wore a green shirt herself and then said, don't forget your green. And then I uh, put some tan green socks on. So, no pinching. I've, I'm in compliance with my socks. Um, I don't own a lot of green. So, anyways, we've been walking through a, um, a series which we have called The Extent of Grace. And what we've done is looked at the passages that are unique to Luke's gospel. What do I mean when I say that? Well, there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them are what we commonly refer to as the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means same eye. It simply means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of overlap. There are passages in there that are told, uh, the same stories often repeated. Uh, however, each author kind of has their own um, personality, audience, uh, ethos, style. Um, John is rather different than all of the other three, but uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of overlap. And Luke actually is the passage that, uh, the, the gospel rather, that has the most uh, unique passages to it. And so we have taken a series of, of looking at these uh, stories that are unique to Luke and um, walked through them. What we have noticed is that, uh, if you've been paying attention at all, Luke's gospel includes an overwhelming care for the poor and the disenfranchised and the outsider. He goes to great lengths to make sure that we know um, Jesus cares for these people. And we've seen time and time and time again that Jesus goes above and beyond he makes it a point to reach out to these people and to draw them in, often to the dismay of many, particularly the religious leaders of the time. And so we come to a, another story like that, a guy named Zacchaeus, who I'm sure you know is a wee little man from the song you may have grown up singing. I actually know of it. I didn't grow up singing it. I don't know why, but maybe... Kelly can teach it to me later. Um, so Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. 
He is nearing the end of his ministry. He's not quite there, but he promised his disciples a, a few chapters back that he is going to Jerusalem, and he's going there to die. And as he's headed to Jerusalem, he's passing through Jericho. And that's where he kind of runs into this guy, Zacchaeus, which is very intentional. Um, before we get too deep, let me pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll go through it here. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for not leaving us to ourselves. Uh, for to whom or to what would we run? How could we properly orient ourselves or understand reality, where we came from, why we're here, where we're going, if it matters. The fact that you gave us your word, both in written form and in the person of Jesus Christ, communicates something massive to us, that you want us to know you. What a glorious thing. Help us this morning as we seek to do that, as we seek to unpack your word, um, correct me from error, protect me from error rather, and help us to see the treasures that you have stored in your word for us. Uh, may we be changed as we read them, as we hear from them. Pray in Christ's name, amen. So Zacchaeus is perhaps a too familiar story. Sometimes there is a cursedness to familiarity in that um, you don't quite question it the same way uh, that you might if you knew nothing about it. You, you tend to maybe assume things about things that you already know some information on, and your mind ends up filling in the blanks rather than actually truly deeply wrestling with what is uh, being communicated here. And that's kind of where we're at with Zacchaeus, right? It's, it's, it's a popular story. You probably heard it as a kid. You know, Jesus is going to Jericho. This guy wants to see Jesus. He's too short, climbs a tree. Jesus goes up to him says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must come and stay at your house today. Stays there. Upon leaving, he says, today salvation has come to this man's house. There it is on the surface, right? What's, what's there to preach on? Jesus meets a guy, saves him. Boom. As, as you dig in, you sort of find that there's, there's a lot more going on there. Um, Zacchaeus is unique in a few ways. First, um, Luke makes sure his name is included in the narrative. That is um, not always the case. And as, verse 2, as you read through, he says, And behold, and that word behold there is, is intentionally put there to get our attention. Um, so Luke is especially pointing us to Zacchaeus. His name, actually, as we'll see later, bears real significance. Uh, secondly, he's rich and he's an outsider. We've, we've kind of uh, bumped into a lot of people on the way that can be poor and disenfranchised, um, but Zacchaeus is unique in that he's, he's wealthy, but he's also an outsider. Um, he's, he's hated by the people. We'll, we'll get into that more later. And you may recall that uh, we had well, if you know your, your Gospel of Luke, a couple chapters before, even less than that, one chapter, uh, the story of the rich young ruler is given in which Jesus confronts a rich man, uh, but they don't give us the name. And that man is a different story. He leaves sorrowful. 
Um, whereas Zacchaeus, we have a, a positive ending here. Um, thirdly, he is a chief tax collector. We've seen a lot of interactions with uh, Jesus and tax collectors. In fact, I think there are six or seven that precede this. Interesting side note, they're all positive. Um, that will be a little more interesting as we dig in and find out how hated tax collectors were. Um, but we see that Zacchaeus is not only a tax collector, but he's kind of like a head tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. So in a very real way, as Jesus gets ready to go to Jerusalem, this character, Zacchaeus, kind of puts the punctuation on, on everything that Jesus has done up to this point. He communicates something to us, and it's almost like an epitome or an apex about Jesus' ministry. We're going to try to cover three things in the text today. One, how we meet Jesus. Two, who meets Jesus. And three, what happens to us when we do meet him. First, as is the case in most scenes that we read about Jesus, there's a humongous crowd. Uh, and Zacchaeus, as we've mentioned, is short. He cannot see over this crowd. So Jesus is, is walking up, and a lot of people say that maybe he is just curious, and he wants to see what this Jesus fellow is all about. I, I think uh, that sells it short, though, because for Zacchaeus to do what he did and run on ahead and climb a tree is actually a really shameful act. Uh, you may have heard in the, the very famous prodigal of the parable son in Luke 15, uh, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, uh, one of the things that makes that story so amazing is that when the father sees the son returning after he squanders uh, his finances on loose living, he runs after him. In the first century, Jewish men did not run. It was a shameful thing to do because in order to run, you'd have to hike up your tunic and to show off your legs was shameful, just not something that happened. So Zacchaeus here is embarrassing himself. He's opening himself to shame in order to see Jesus. I don't think people that are merely curious do that. Secondly, he climbs a tree we could relate to that. You don't need much cultural context for that, but imagine if running is shameful, how much more embarrassing climbing a tree would be. It's like if some, um, you're at a parade or something and, and, and somebody climbs a tree. It's a weird thing to do. So Zacchaeus opens himself to shame to see Jesus. First, rather quick point, is that um, anytime we want to see Jesus or follow him or know him, there is some kind of cost that you're going to have to pay. And Zacchaeus paid it. And what we see is that Jesus is more than a religious system or idea. He is, in fact, a person Tim Keller says in, in his uh, Reason for God book that uh, a guy walked up to a pastor one time and said, uh, I'll believe if you give me a watertight argument. And uh, the guy brilliantly responds, what if God didn't give us a watertight argument, but instead he gave us a watertight person? 
Christianity is wholly unique and that what we have is a human being. And Zacchaeus heard about these rumblings of this human being that he was doing incredibly amazing things. He was loving like no one else had loved. He was healing like no one else had healed. He was teaching like no one else had taught. He was completely and wholly unique. First point is, Christianity is primarily about a person, Jesus Christ. Have you pursued him and do you know him? Or is your Christianity generally a system or a box that you check off as a list of affirmations? Or has it cost you something to know him and to follow him? Zacchaeus had something wonderful that we all need, and that is a recognition of his need and a desire to see Jesus. Okay, secondly, who meets Jesus or what kind of person meets Jesus? First, I want to just correct some misconceptions here. First, uh, it might look like Zacchaeus is just a guy in the, in the right place at the right time, you know, and Jesus is coming through the crowd and he just sees, oh, uh, there's a guy in a tree, I'll talk to him. There were probably, I would think, children in trees playing, climbing, wanting to get on the action as well. But there's, there's more than this happening here. And, and we can see that in verse 10 because Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost. So as Jesus is passing through Jericho before he gets to Jerusalem, he is intentionally going to Zacchaeus as one of his own because he knows that this man is rejected He's ostracized. He's on the fringes of society. He's hated. Jesus is intentional in his pursuit of him. Secondly, uh, we might be tempted to say that God helps those who help themselves, right? Uh, okay, Jesus is coming up, and, and he sees the guy with the initiative. Oh, this one climbed the tree. Let me reward him by talking to him and going to his house. Um, again, it's just not what we see based on verse 10. There's, there's nothing else in Scripture either that affirms this uh, pithy little statement, which frankly is just untrue. Um, God helps the helpless. We'll, we'll, we'll find out more about that later. Um, so, who was Zacchaeus? He was a chief tax collector. Uh, we went through this about a month and a half ago, so I won't belabor it too much. Um, Tax collectors in the first century, uh, in the eyes of a Jew, were the worst of the worst kind of human that could exist. Here's why. The Jews were under Roman occupation. So Rome, in imperialistic fashion, comes in, takes over your land, and says, you've got to pay our taxes. Okay? Since... The Romans were coming from the outside. They didn't know the neighborhood as well, as it were. So what they would do is they would find locals, and they would say, hey, you want to collect taxes for us? So these locals would effectively buy into this Roman system to collect taxes. And they were viewed as traitors, because you're selling out your people in order to collect taxes uh, from the Roman government. Um, on top of that, the tax collectors did more than just collect taxes. So to become a tax collector, you had to buy in 
But that was okay because the way that you make your money back is you take the money from other people. So you essentially just would say, hey, you owe your Roman taxes. Let's say you owed 500 whatever the currency was. Um, they would say, give us 1,000. You need to pay 1,000. They would take the 500. They'd give the 500 to the Romans. They would pocket the 500. They would keep it for themselves. They cheated people. They extorted people. Not only that, but the Roman government actually gave you backup. So if you went and you went to collect and they said, I'm not giving you my money, they'd give you a band of soldiers to sort of enforce it. Beat them up until they pay. So this is Zacchaeus. And it's pretty clear that he was probably a, a pretty good tax collector, meaning he was pretty bad, right? Because he climbed his way through the ranks. He not only collected taxes, he oversaw other people that collected them. He was a bad dude. He was an extortionist. And so this is who we're dealing with. This is who Zacchaeus is, a man incredibly guilty of great wrong, genuine wrong. He's an extortionist and a cheater. And how does Jesus respond to the extortionist and the cheater, the defrauder? He makes a beeline for him. He pursues him in love. He doesn't run up to him berating him. The list of Zacchaeus' sins won't even fit in Jesus' pocket. Paper wasn't really a thing back then, so that doesn't work. But the point is, Zacchaeus, his sins are before him. He is aware of them. And Jesus could, and maybe we unfortunately would, walk up to him and tell him everything that he's done wrong. Jesus pursues him, calls him by name. He says, come down, come to your house. kind of puzzling, right? Jesus is not unaware of Zacchaeus' sins. It's not as though he's coming into a situation in which he's just never met Zacchaeus, so he doesn't know. Remember, we, we have uh, a precedent for, for Jesus knowing what's going on in the heart of people. Remember John 4, he walks up to the woman at the well and he says, um, well, he basically graciously confronts her and says, look, I know you've had five husbands and the guy that you're living with now is not your husband either. He's aware of what's going on in her life. He doesn't condemn her, but he tells her. He's like, look, I know. I know what's going on. And then just several verses before this with the rich young ruler, the guy comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do? You know, and, and Jesus, knowing that this guy loves money above all things, says, sell your possessions, come follow me. And the guy leaves sorrowful. Jesus puts his finger on the guy's sin. He knows it. He's pressing it. He's like, you're worshiping this thing, and I know it about you. That is why I'm going to graciously show you what it is. The guy leaves sorrowfully. Same thing is going on with Zacchaeus. He knows all of his sins. He knows every moment of extortion. He knows every beating that has potentially happened. He knows that Zacchaeus is a selfish man that is out for himself and he has made his living on the backs of other people. He has oppressed them. 
The Bible has a lot to say about oppression. What does this teach us? Well, you hear us say this all of the time, but it bears repeating. Jesus does not base his saving work on anything meritorious. There is nothing good in you that made Jesus love you. There is nothing good in any of us that makes Jesus love us. Here's the difficulty. We can stand here all day long and proclaim this doctrinal truth and say that we believe it, but deep down in our hearts, something is going on that is a little bit different. If we're honest, does it upset us a little bit that Jesus didn't lay into Zacchaeus? Subtly, quietly, we think if we are a certain way, God will love us. We think God loves us maybe because of something in us. It's not true at all. Verse 10, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. If you know Jesus, it's because you were lost, not because you had anything to bring to the table. Question for you, how do we respond to Zacchaeus? Not necessarily this first century Jew, but professor I had at Westminster Theological Seminary, his name was Ed Welch, he used to say something. I know something about you. It's a great one-liner, so I'm going to say it right now. I know something about you. There is a Zacchaeus in your life. Probably more than one. There is someone who you have a uniquely difficult time loving. You either know them personally, or it is a type of person, or probably both, and it is probably more than one person. There is someone that we perceive in the way that others would have perceived Zacchaeus. There's somebody in your life who's irritating you, who you struggle to fight off feelings of bitterness towards. It's just the nature of life. It could be a friend, it could be a former friend, maybe there was a falling out, and maybe he or she legitimately hurt you, right? Zacchaeus legitimately hurt people, and yet Jesus <laughs> blows right past it. He makes a beeline for Zacchaeus. It could be a family member. I'm only 31, but I've already <laughs> figured out that the uh, impression that I had of a family in general when I was 15 is just completely changed. And that's just the nature of life, right? Family's hard because you're put in close proximity to these people for your whole life. Other relationships have a unique way of falling off, right? But family, you're, you're bound to in so many ways. Is there somebody in your family that is difficult, that you struggle to love? Colleagues. Do you have terrible colleagues? It's hard to go to work with people that you don't necessarily choose to work with. Human beings are sinful. There are naturally situations that arise 
over and over and over again that make you want to feel a certain way about these people. There's probably somebody in your workplace that you don't like, and you don't want to like them. And Jesus is here saying, look at the way me, the perfect son of God, the only spotless one, the only blameless one, deals with this sinner, with this disenfranchised human being, that the entire culture stands and says, we have a reason to hate him. He has done this and this and this and this. I saw him beat my family because they didn't pay enough. Right? This is real wrong. I'm not diminishing that. What I am saying is, Jesus has called us to love this person. They are not too far gone to be saved, to be known by God, to be loved by God. In fact, that's a qualifier. Jesus doesn't say the Son of Man came to seek the put together, the upright, the righteous. He came to save the lost, the broken, the weak. We ought to pursue the same. When we write people off in our minds, we are being antithetical to both the desire and the mission of Jesus Christ himself. I know, we want easy people in our lives. It's not what Jesus wants for you. It's not what he took for himself. Life would have been a lot better. He wouldn't have been killed. He wouldn't have been murdered if he dealt with easy people. So the first question is, who's the Zacchaeus in your life? What do you think about when they pop into your head? How do you pursue them? Do you see it as a unique and glorious opportunity for the hand of God to work in and through your life to a person that is lost and broken and hurting? Disenfranchised on the outside. Or maybe you feel like you're Zacchaeus. That's legitimate too. You ever feel that you're beyond saving? Your sins are just always before you. They have stacked up and formed a wall that you just can't see over. It's all you see and it's all you know is your own failure. It's all you feel. It's a weight that you can't get out from under. And you think, well, this thing I did that one time, it disqualified me. It was too bad. If people knew, it'd be different. I just can't get over it. No sin in your life has ever disqualified you from the love of God. Jesus Christ pursues the sinful. He pursues the messy. It's kind of a paradox. It's actually our lack of worth that makes us worthy. Right? Jesus saves the messed up. He saves the messy. It's his line of work. It's his heart. Sometimes people tell me that they're maybe struggling as a Christian. They're not sure they actually are a Christian. They kind of feel like 
imposters. Maybe they're phony. They don't live up to things the way they ought. I got a really good answer for that. Join the club. Every person that Jesus has ever saved and known is a total mess. And ironically, the moment you stop thinking you're a mess is where you're in trouble. Because that's when you start thinking that it's up to you and that it's not up to Jesus and his grace and his gift to you. Jesus runs after the poor, the dirty sinner who feels like they can't measure up. If you're sitting here today and your mind has been filled with thoughts of gratitude because you don't think you're like Zacchaeus, (laughs) you need to blow the whole thing up and start over. That's not Christianity. That's a trap of self-trust that will ensnare you all the way to your doom. Good people, clean people, righteous people, that's not who Jesus pursues. He died for the ungodly, not the godly, not the halfway there, not the good, the ungodly. God wants you, and he loves you, poor sinner. It's good news, right? Okay, third point. What happens when we meet Jesus? We know who he meets, the undeserving, the disenfranchised. What happens when Jesus meets these people or us? I am severely indebted to a couple of people uh, in, in regards to what I'm about to talk about. A Bible teacher by the name of Brad Gray, um, Britain professor of Bible at Milligan College, a guy by the name of J. Lee Magnus, and the Bible Project. Uh, They kind of tied this all together for me, and this is sort of related to what I was talking about at the beginning. When you look at this thing on the surface, you're like, okay, Jesus meets a guy and saves him, that's it. When you dig in a little bit, though, uh, it kind of opens up this whole uh, web of crazy intentionality and God writing his Bible and uh, fulfilling it for us in our midst with the person of Zacchaeus. Um, Zacchaeus is not over there. I don't know why I pointed over there. But um, you, I'm going to put some puzzle pieces before you and do my best to pull these in so that we can get a bigger picture of, of what is happening here. So bear with me. I promise as we go off the track a little bit, I am coming back and there's a reason for it all. So, uh, you may have thought that it was an inadvertent detail that this tree is a sycamore fig tree. Uh, You know, maybe you just, that's Luke telling the story, and that's the kind of tree it was. Um, You know, and on the one hand, this tree actually did have strong branches that grew rather low to the ground, so you could climb it, especially if you're a short guy. Uh, Certainly, that's a pertinent detail. But there's, there's actually something else going on here. Um, in the Greek, the word used for this tree, this sycamore fig tree, is sukamorea. The word in verse 8 used to describe Zacchaeus' actions is sukafonteo. You may notice that those two words share the same root. So the significance for Luke in mentioning the type of tree is more than to just convey us that the tree is climbable. He's actually telling us something about Zacchaeus with this play on words. There's intentionality in the Greek language to use these words to carry a significance. The Greek term which describes defrauding 
which is the one in verse 8 that Zacchaeus uses, is the one that shares the same root of the word for sycamore fig tree. Okay, does that make sense? So, so it's almost like um, Zacchaeus is getting into the tree, and as he gets into this specific type of tree, it's telling us about what kind of character Zacchaeus is. Uh, J. Lee Magnus puts it infinitely better than I ever could. He says, the point is not where Zacchaeus was, but what he was. And what he was was highlighted by where he was. So Luke, by using this Greek word that describes this tree, is also using a word to describe Zacchaeus as a cheater. Okay? Same root word. There's another weird thing going on here. The name Zacchaeus means righteous. What? Zacchaeus is not a righteous guy. I think we've seen it, right? Uh, and it, it makes sense when he uses the word defraud to describe this type of tree. Not a coincidence. We'll come back to that. Fig trees in the Gospel of Luke, further we see that he consistently uses to demonstrate all kinds of different spiritual realities. J. Lee Magnus says this, in each case... Luke's use of figs and fig trees is highly and specifically symbolic of fruitfulness, precisely in the context of repentance and in the light of salvation. Pause. What happens in the story here? Jesus goes up on this fig... I'm sorry. Zacchaeus goes up on this fig tree. Jesus talks to him. He repents. He gets saved. Continue. Justifying our expectation of a symbolic function for the fig tree into which Zacchaeus climbed. So a good interpretive principle that we always try to put forward here is that the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. If ever you come across a passage and you're not quite sure what it means, the best thing to do is to let the Bible interpret itself. Okay, there's a topic here in uh, this gospel. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that talks about righteousness and fig trees? glad you asked because the answer is yes the book of Amos uh, in verse 714 B he says I was a herdsman or shepherd and a dresser of sycamore figs what is the book of Amos about he is a minor prophet proclaiming to the northern kingdom of Israel that they need to repent because under King Jeroboam II, they have grown prosperous and they have forgotten the commands of God. They have begun to oppress the poor and they have done it on the backs of, they have made themselves rich on the backs of other people. Does that sound familiar to you? Zacchaeus, right? He was extorting people. Northern Kingdom of Israel was doing the same thing. They were creating poverty cycles that oppressed people and making themselves rich. Amos indicted these people by telling them of their sin and calling them on to repent. And if you know a verse in Amos, the one that you probably know is a very famous one. Martin Luther King Jr. quoted it from his, uh, in his letter from Birmingham jail during the Civil Rights Movement. It says, Amos 5.24 says this, But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Okay, he's indicting the northern kingdom of Israel, saying, you have forgotten righteousness, you have forgotten justice, let it come. In the English, the words in this verse, righteousness and justice, 
are two separate words. In the Hebrew, there are actually two different words for justice. There are two different kinds of justice. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Bear with me. Uh, the words are mishpat and zedekah. Okay, mishpat refers to a type of legal justice. It is, uh, consider it like governing justice. You want to have laws in place that make sure people get punished if they steal from you. And if, if you have a law that says if you're six foot two, you're allowed to steal, and if you're under that, you're not, it's not just, right? Mishpat is the idea of having fair laws and, and ensuring that justice is doled out where it ought to be. The other word, zedekah, refers to what one might call social justice. Uh, everybody's favorite topic on Twitter, right? Um, I, I, this is more of a love for neighbor type justice. This is more of a concern for making sure that people have their basic needs met making sure that you're not doing exactly what the northern kingdom of Israel was doing and that you were oppressing people to create a system for yourself that makes life easier for you and harder for them. Okay, what does this have to do with Zacchaeus? After Zacchaeus meets Jesus, Jesus goes to him, stays with him at his house, which is scandalous, by the way. You may remember that people got so mad that he was doing this. Uh, because it means that Jesus is drawing near to this guy. Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus in the tree meets Jesus. Jesus goes, stays at his house. After he meets Jesus, he says, I'm going to give away half my goods to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. What do you see? Righteousness and justice. Half of my goods I give to the poor, Zedekah. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold, Mishpat. The fulfillment of Amos' call in chapter 5 comes in the person of Zacchaeus, through the work of Jesus Christ, to this disenfranchised, unlikely person. Nowhere in our passage this morning does Jesus say anything to Zacchaeus about having to do this. This is not a burden that he placed on Zacchaeus' shoulders. This is the natural result of a heart that meets Jesus. It's the natural result of, of a heart that meets Jesus. How does a guy literally overnight go from extorting and defrauding to give away half of all he has and restoring fourfold everything that he has taken from others over the years. What happens when we meet Jesus is that we are transformed. And it's very, very important that we understand the order by which this happens. Zacchaeus meets Jesus, spends time with Jesus, and then decides to give away his possessions, restore everything fourfold. We have an unfortunate habit of reversing this, reversing this order and saying, if I give away half my goods to the poor, if I restore fourfold everything, then Jesus will love me. Then God will love me. Then God will accept me. I'm telling you over and over and over and over again in Scripture, the order is that God calls the unlikely, the undeserving, 
the unworthy, the sinful, and then we see transformation. Encountering Jesus changes you. It's inevitable. Remember how I said Zacchaeus' name means righteousness or righteous? This passage points to Zacchaeus as a defrauder, right, based on verse 8 in the name of the tree. But it's overshadowed ultimately by his name meaning, righteous. Why? Because Jesus met him. In Ezekiel 34, verse 11, we read, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them out. This is spoken against the backdrop of false righteousness that the leaders in Israel had used to prop themselves up. And in the story of Zacchaeus, we see him fulfilling this promise that he will seek and save the lost, spoken thousands of years ago. So, this is true for you as well. Paul gets at this in in 1 Corinthians 6. If you have met Jesus, if you know him, whatever you were, you are no longer. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. At this point, you're like, I thought you were going to say something encouraging, Jason. What the heck is happening? I'm getting a little nervous. And then we hit verse 11. And such were some of you. Such past tense were some of you. And then you met Jesus. And you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Whatever you were that burdens you, extortioner, defrauder, name it. You know your sin way better than I do. When you met Jesus, that became a past tense reality. You were washed. Jesus Christ has given you his righteousness, and he has sought you and has bought you. It's really important for us to see this because there will be times in your life where you're not going to feel righteous. I promise you. It probably already happens all the time to you. What are you going to do in that moment? If you rely on your own reasoning and justifications to bury your sin, you're going to drive yourself crazy. If, however, you look to God and you see what he's accomplished throughout history and how his commitment to pursue the lost and rescue them has persisted ever since Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God, you'll have something to stake your life on. Perhaps you still feel like Zacchaeus right now, trapped in a body of sin. You just can't live up and you're plagued by all of these things. You just can't catch a break. Jesus comes to you and he says, Sinner, come down from the tree. I'm going to go with you to your house. I want you and all of your filth. I will cleanse you. I will restore you. 
I will make you, as your name states, righteous. God will bring this reality to fruition one day when Jesus returns again perfectly. And until then, we celebrate this glorious reality of what God has done for us at the cost of his own son, his own son's life, by taking communion. What enabled Jesus to love Zacchaeus the way that he loved Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was an outsider. Jesus was the ultimate insider, right? Reigning above all of creation. Created the entire world with words, right? Spoke and it happened. You don't get more inside than that. He became a human being and became an outsider. Hebrews 12 says he suffered outside the camp. (laughs) He died. He was disenfranchised. He was rejected by men so that he could bring you and me inside. So that he could bring you and I to God again. That's what we celebrate by taking communion. So as we sing the next few songs here, take some time. Repent. After you repent, rejoice in the fact that there is no sin too great to keep God's hand from pursuing you, from loving you, from bringing you to himself. The juice represents spilled blood that cleanses you. The bread represents a broken body, which was broken for you and for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all that you have done, your word that you've given us for uh, Amos 5.24 could never be fulfilled by a single human being. As you spoke to the rich young ruler, you said, uh, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Shortly after that, you fulfill that glorious reality in Zacchaeus' life. A rich man who was hardened, who had no hope of ever being softened and ever knowing you. You broke through and did only what God can do. You saved him, and you changed him into a generous man. Lord, we thank you for saving us. We are a mess, but you run after us in our mess. May this news never grow old to us. May we find ourselves brought in, called in, loved, known by you. In Christ's name, amen.